This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. We've launched a new Let It Roll website at the same old URL, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's a complete archive of all of our 350-plus shows, sorted by season, miniseries, co-host, guest, genre, and era. It's also a great way to support the show. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber if you can afford it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a final look at the English scene in 1984, U2, Paul Weller's Style Council, Wham! Plus the recording of Bob Geldof's Do They Know It's Christmas. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Uh, or should I say 80s roll? Because we've got Ed Legg here, the freebird yeller, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Ed, are you ready for Do They Know It's Christmas? Do you know it's Christmas? I think I do. I did then, at least. <laughs> because good, they good. Told, Because Boy George told me so. Yes, and... Sir Bob Geldof, let's not forget yes, the, his knightliness. Yep. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, this chapter actually is set in Storm Studios, London, November 25th, the day they recorded it. But before we get there, Matos does some of his usual elegant weaving and basically returns to the British scene for to get the second half of the year in there. And it's interesting, you know, 84 is the year, the novel year of the book, but it's really kind of the greater 1984. It's really a book about pop music from, say, 1981 to 1985. And it's interesting that we associate at least my memories of 1984 pop had so many British bands involved, but I think that the heyday of the second British invasion was really 83. And now we're get into just the purely 1984 part and it's kind of a bummer comparatively did you have the same impression that's funny you put it that way because i did i was i found myself thinking god this is kind of a drag 
<laughs> I mean, boy, you know, boy, they they did. They were still doing their thing, but he really and he the does. Culture Club. He is. Yes. Culture Club. And, and his voice is one of the ones that's memorable in that song. So he certainly is still around and as is Duran Duran. Yeah. But we're about to get the power station, which I liked a lot better than Duran Duran. Um, because you're a rockist. That's right, brother. <laughs> so so it's not so and and we weren't in England. We weren't well I wasn't reading Smash Hits. And um but 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 certainly the Phil Collins and the the other things that he brings up, uh, Mr. Michael and Wham. I mean George that Michael, certainly yeah. was coming. Yep. It it that certainly was, coming, was but so. Yeah, to me you zeroed in on the pain point. I mean, he starts with Duran Duran and who are Started the year absolutely red hot, coming off the Rio album. But then they put out the Seven and the Ragged Tiger album. And I mean, a lot of people disagree with me, but I just really, at the time and to this day, felt like Seven and the Ragged Tiger was a big fall off from their first two albums. And, But more importantly, you get to the real crux of the problem is that they immediately split off into two competing acts the power station and arcadia i think was the one that nick uh rhodes led the keyboardists and you know that's the end of their momentum and for a band that had been that hot for such a short period of time to then immediately bifurcate into two different bands although they weren't officially splitting they really never never we never got duran duran again like we had it before andrew taylor never comes back from the power station thing and you know, uh, they just moved on down the road. But then Culture Club really fell off the table. I mean, the difference between – I went back and listened to Waking Up with the House on Fire, which I think I made it through twice in the 80s. And, and I mean, it was my girlfriend's copy, of course. Um, I was way too manly to go out and buy a, a Culture Club cassette. But I had really enjoyed Color by Numbers, you know, all the way through. Yeah, And then – Waking up with the house on fire is just not at all strong, and we'll play uh, the war song in a bit. But it's one of the stupidest pop songs, you know. I mean, it it got a lot of mockery around my uh, high school. I don't know about your college scene, but <laughs> war is stupid. People are stupid. Yep, they sure are. <laughs> Says that song. <laughs> But we do have George Michael and Wham, which was a bit of a breath of fresh air. Although, like Matos points out, they really didn't hit in the U.S. until um, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, when they'd right. already had a, you know, a two-year run in England. I didn't even know about Wham rap until I did a whole episode on George Michael. But they started out as a sort of British hip-hop act, um, which certainly was a shock to me, <laughs> me there too. wasn't a lot of too, there man. wasn't a lot of competition to be a british rapper in 1982 though so that <laughs> it was relatively easy to get to the top 10 but quite hip um you know for their time and place but you know kind of an anomaly i, I um i never knew what to do with those british R&B obsessives like George Michael or Paul Young, and then even Paul Weller of the Jam morphed into that in this period with Style Council. But I don't know. Thoughts on Duran Duran first? Did, did you have anything else to add to the Duran Duran convo? Like, did Nile Rodgers well, and the Reflex make any? Just that they were done. No, I mean, just that they were. They were. I just think of them and Boy George as being so all over it in '83. And by yeah. this time in '84, they are not—they are not a factor like they were, especially at a time when there are so many others that are. That you know, yes, they're going to be both of it, both you know, Boy George and Simon Lebon, and I don't know that maybe the other guys in Duran were in in that. And do they know it's Christmas? But I mean, they're definitely—I definitely noticed the voices in that song. But that's it. By yeah. this time in '84, by this time that's that's their thing. That's their last thing, and yeah. it's part of rock culture that I remember. And and it's it's amazing how fast it went. And with Duran Duran, especially like until I did an episode no on him, I didn't really grasp 
how immensely successful they had been just you know first album multiple singles second album multiple singles you know i mean like their stated goal was to you know um play the hammersmith one year and the and the madison square garden the next and they did it and then they really didn't have a follow-up they, they didn't you know and i mean those are pretty ambitious things to envision but you know uh that was all they had. <laughs> they got to the top. They yep, did what and, they said they were going to do. And then they looked around and yeah. next thing you know, they're wrecking yachts. But should we go ahead and hear the reflex? Yes, sir. Let's all right. Let's hear Duran Duran, the reflex, reflex mixed by Nile Rogers or remixed by Nile Rogers. And that was The Reflex by Duran Duran, which I picked because it was one of my least favorite songs from that period. And I had been a big Duran Duran fan up to that point. The Wild Boys is the one that really, for me, flop sweated. And I think I've told that story multiple times. But the one story that Matos told that I hadn't heard before was when they got the uh, commission to write the James Bond film theme. And, you know, the legendary Cubby Broccoli hires them, the, the series producer. And um, John Barry, the legendary composer who wrote the original Bond theme, didn't like what they had done. And so they have to bring in Bernard Edwards, who's now Rogers' partner from Chic, to smooth the waters. I never picture Bernard Edwards, the bass player from Chic, as somebody who could call John Barry on the phone and say, hey, these Duran Duran boys are all right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I did. And do you remember that the video for for that song? Do you remember? I mean, I actually did like that song. Good. I like. I mean, I liked it. Now that's eighty five. That yeah. You know, but that's it. And we will get to. I mean, we're going to get to Live Aid, but it's it's interesting because I did as I I did listen to this on an on a you know an audio book, and I kept letting it go into the next chapter. And and every time I can tell it's getting toward Live Aid. I, I would think, God, was Duran Duran at Live Aid? Then I remember, no, Power Station was. No, I don't yep. know. Was Arcadia there too? Okay. I, I, I don't know Power if Arcadia Station. was there or not, but yeah, Power Station yeah. was a big deal. Power Station was there, yeah, with Michael DeBar is fronting them, actually, instead of Robert Palmer, believe it or not. Huh. I saw huh. the set. I remember seeing that set. Um, I didn't see all of We'll get to that. I know. I don't want to jump ahead. I'm jumping ahead. But yeah, that I think of... Every time I thought, God, they were big. Were they at Live Aid? And then I remembered, no. Yep. Some of them were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they. Uh, it's, it's an interesting career arc. I mean, they just go basically straight yeah. up to the top, and then straight down. Like that, they, they. Yeah. Most of them regather, reconvene after a couple of years, but they never, they're never really Duran Duran again. And by, even by '87. They were just a distant memory, you know. I think it was like '89. Yeah. I noticed they had an album out, and, and you know, we just kind of casually made fun of it. But it, I don't know. It's mm-hmm. interesting to compare that dynamic with George Michael, because then he gets into the whole, you know, Wham story. And Wham is essentially just the George Michael story, because uh, you know Andrew Ridgely uh, was good looking and actually put you know help George Michael without Andrew originally there would be no wham I think he earned right. the fortune that he made for the one or two songs that George Michael gave him co-writing credits and maybe he did earn the co-writing credits on those but he's lived very comfortably uh uh for the you know off off those songwriting credits but I mean you know you look you get into the backstory of these these duets and and Andrew Ridgely makes, you know, Art Garfunkel and John Oates look like Beethoven and, and Mozart, <laughs> you know. Yes. I mean, Very true. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, last week I think Are we was, just we... picking on him? 
Is he just easy to pick on? Is that he what is? is easy to pick on. I mean, <laughs> you know, but he was awfully good looking and he did dance pretty well and he did get George Michael out there. And without him, you know, no George yeah. Michael. And George Michael was just uncanny talented. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like one of those people who could hear every note of his album in his head and then actually get to the studio and get most of it down on record the way he heard it. And you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. I definitely didn't take him seriously at the time. I just didn't even occur to me that somebody who didn't have a guitar could be a serious musician. But obviously he was. And um, and this run, you know, they went on like Wham! Rap in 82. They start out as this these British rappers, which is. I mean, considering it's 1982, it's, you know, certainly hipper than I was at the time. They they were really jumped the gun. And then and then, you know, uh, Careless Whisper and and you know that I guess was released as a sort of a trial balloon for George Michael's solo career. Uh and uh, and this famous story about Steve Gregory playing the sax solo. Had you come across this Steve Gregory sax solo no. story before? It's no the one go ahead. Go ahead. The one there is another there's a famous story and I think it's that Supposedly he cut his hair halfway through filming the video. Is it for Careless Whisper? Is it another song? He cut his hair halfway through a, a very expensive video shoot during that time. I got a ton of because they had to reshoot it. They had to, yeah, they lost money. I don't know if it was Careless. So that's what I kept thinking about when he was talking about the sax player and his <laughs> adventure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean. I remember that story too. And and that's the kind of thing that, you know, George Michael, of course, would get pilloried over because he's, it's funny for somebody who considered himself an ugly duckling. I mean, he was to me just as good looking as Andrew Ridgely and certainly all the girls in my high school just loved the guy. And, uh, uh, you know, with the, the first permanent five o'clock shadow I can remember seeing, and, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and uh, and Don Johnson, him and John oh, Johnson. I mean, right, Don you Johnson. know what's weird? But but think about it. they're both very exotic and striking looking guys and different look at. Them. Yeah. They are they're they're definitely and they both got hot that fall in the in the US at least. You know, they both were really visible um that fall. And I certainly saw George Michael more than Don because I worked at night. So I never saw Miami Vice until the you know i wasn't and i left that business a year later but um yeah but george michael i saw all the time that fall yeah and they both wore a lot of pastels good very true yeah they were that was it was a, a a year for fashionable pastels but really i mean wham wham's hits of 82 83 84 didn't do jack in the states it wasn't until wake me up before you go i just blew up and and it was video driven and it also had um you know the choose life shirts which yeah i hadn't i had sort of heard about frankie goes to hollywood i think i might have even read a time magazine article about him because that's how informed and hip i was but I think the Frankie Say Relax shirts had penetrated my consciousness. But those George Michael Choose Life shirts, I completely conflated the Frankie Goes to Hollywood and, and Wham thing. And I think I thought at first that 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 Wham was this Frankie Goes to Hollywood I'd been hearing about so much because I never heard <laughs> You know, yeah. but I did hear that yeah. there was this English band that had the first band to have three number ones right out the gate. The first band since Jerry and the Pacemakers, anyway. Um, and but they didn't make that big an impact in the states, particularly the part of the backward part of the states I was in. So there was definitely some confused moments when I was like, "Oh, these are the guys," you know. And then when I heard "Wake Me Up Before You Go," I mean, it's instantly catchy and memorable, but it was not at all. Um, you know what i was expecting but let's go ahead and hear our next song and then we can talk about it this is culture club the war song Thank you. 
And that was Boy George and Culture Club with The War Song, which Boy George conceived of as a response to Frankie Goes to Hollywood and a, sort of a parody of their their songs. But I can remember being just slack-jawed at how ridiculous I thought this song was. You know, war is stupid, people are stupid. And I was like, yeah, you're... And... <laughs> You know, do you have anything new to say? I mean, it really felt like Boy George had had his absolute, you know, finger on absolute pulse the year before. And then suddenly the weird red hair and the stupid song. And it just, I don't know, it was really staggering to me um, about how quickly, you know, they fell apart or the quality of their, their music just dropped undeniably. And I guess it just goes to show you, if you're busy being a rock star, it's hard to actually get in the studio and write songs and, and record them because clearly their focus was not on their music at this point. Yes. Unless Bob Geldof is, is hectoring you and hurting you in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And we'll get to, do they know it's Christmas? Uh, yes. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> um, again, the, there's one thing in common, the aesthetics of Do They Know That Christmas War a Secondary Concern, just like the aesthetics of the waking up with the house on fire were, um, I don't know. It's just like you say, it was just the competition was moving so fast. And, uh, I think, I think that I have a similar thing with, Boy George and George Michael as I did with Cindy Lauper and Madonna where I was just sure that Boy George was the real talent and the one that we would be hearing about for a decade and he wasn't I mean he was obviously very talented but he didn't hold it together and stay a star at all and George Michael just kept going and going from strength to strength for the next I guess until about 91 or so I mean definitely through 87 um, whereas Boy George yeah. was pretty much done after this. I, I I don't have a theory. You know, with Cindy Lauper and Madonna, my theory is that Cindy Lauper didn't get famous until she was older, so she didn't have that much left in the tank. But Boy George wasn't that much older than George Michael. I have no idea why um, their career trajectories went the direction they did, unless it was um, Boy George's relationship with Roy Hay, the drummer and band manager and abusive boyfriend. Like that seems like one, yes. one too many gigs for one guy. I think like pick two Roy. Um, there you go. And heroin. Where did, yes. And me and heroin did come along. For I boy. think that's, yeah, that's probably, uh, I mean, that's to me why I say Sir Paul McCartney passed John Lennon and, and George Harrison up. I don't know that Harrison ever did heroin, but he definitely did way too much cocaine. And, and the heroin is a big factor, I think, in John Lennon's uh, artistic constipation uh, from the late 60s onward. Um, but yeah, no, I think you might have your finger on the pulse there that, that heroin was was probably the biggest factor. But then we come to Frankie goes to Hollywood and, and, uh, the whole, um, what was your take on the whole Frankie goes to Hollywood phenomenon? Did it, were you aware it, of it? Well, from that movie body double, that Brian De Palma movie, oh. which I'm pretty sure I saw in 85. And I don't remember hearing Frankie until 85, but you know, I'm in my mind's eye. That's where I first heard that song was body double. Um, and I, yep. you know, I could just be, I could just be, um, conflating it to that versus seeing, cause I absolutely remember the whole, the fact that, that both Frankie and culture club were wearing those, those shirts, you know, that the, the t-shirt thing was going on. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I wanted in my mind's eye, I, it's George that I saw first, George Michael first. But and you know, but and here's the thing: in England, it's like with Wham. I didn't hear of Wham and or rap, Wham rap. You know, all of a sudden, here's Wham, and in, in that fall of '84. Yeah. And and England is a different, you know, it's a different animal, and some of it skirts over here and really explodes, um, which is part of the point of this whole this whole year in this book, this era, and other eras too, of course. 
Yeah, definitely. And the uh, the thing with Frankie Goes to Hollywood I, that it's interesting. You know, they they lay out how they come from Liverpool, and you know, I think it was in way back in the the second or third chapter of the book when we talked about Trevor Horn producing that album or several other singles at least, and they there are people who are involved in the group that um, said it was a deliberate sort of uh, build and destroy plan that they, that they plan to get super big and then tear the whole thing down. I mean, Paul Morley, I think from the NME uh, said that, you know, it was a deliberate plan, but then they wanted, the band wanted to go to America and America was just not, ready or interested in Frankie goes to Hollywood the way England was. I mean, it, it, they talk about how they, they wore leather jackets while they performed Bruce Springsteen's born to run as a big joke of making fun of American rockers and nobody got the joke. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, uh, I think that, that, I think Frankie goes to Hollywood was just coming out of England and was just one of those acts that, America was too homophobic for and had no cultural context for. Um, no I mean, place relax. to put them. No, they yeah. had a place to put George somehow. Somehow Culture Club worked. Yeah. Here. And I can totally see sometimes like, you know, Kylie, Min- I, I would not know Kylie Minogue. I might recognize her on the street if there were people chasing her, but she is so big in England. And she has never. Kate Bush is another one. I know Kate Bush is more famous, but but again, people who are just gigantic in England, and then they don't translate over here. Some things don't. Some bands, some acts don't. A lot of things don't. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think Matos makes a pretty good point that you know in England Thatcher was like you know what is it the velvet glove and the iron fist like she just took the velvet glove off (laughs) it was just iron fist right in your mouth you know the falklands war crushing the miners strike whereas reagan got to be the quote-unquote happy warrior or that might have been tip o'neill or some democrat but but he had that same ethos of smiling and saying saying horrible things and everybody thought oh isn't he funny and nice i think matos used that same metaphor when he was describing Reagan. Yeah, he definitely did. I'm getting it from Michelangelo. But, you know, like Springsteen, according to Matos, Reagan could say these horrible things in ways that were palatable to Americans. But Frankie Goes to Hollywood was not really palatable to Americans. And, and, um, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, the, the, the combination of of them being sort of designed to be a self-destruct pop act and that worked brilliantly in england where they have these massive hits big album and then you know sort of implode within a year but by coming over here where none of it had any impact um they just got swallowed up it it makes me think of um Mm -hmm. uh the british stars before the beatles like people like adam faith and um Oh, who's the the legendary uh, guy that was the first Cliff Richard, you know, Cliff Richard yeah, out of yeah. faith guys like that would come over to America and be like, you know, fifth on the bill on some Dick Clark tour or whatever, and just sing like a rock. And that's kind of what happened to Frankie yeah. goes to Hollywood here. And, uh, you know, and, and then they get, mm-hmm. they get dragged by Mick Jagger, which is an especially cruel fate <laughs> in 1984. Like, <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're going to get ripped by anybody. Uh, it's got to be that dinosaur. But let's go ahead and take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the trad rockers of the time, including Julian Lennon and U2. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, and poor Julian Lennon, like he got, uh, they were talking about the Smash Hits poll, Smash Hits being a British uh, music magazine. And um, did Julian get best new act, I want to say, but but the Julian Lennon thing, I mean, that one song sitting on the pebble by the river playing guitar and people going on and on about what a lyrical genius he was just like his dad. The whole thing just made me sad, even at the time when he was having hits. <laughs> I felt sorry for mm. him and it didn't take long mm-hmm. uh, for him to not have any more hits. Um, but the thing that I was oblivious to that Matos points out was that he was really retrograde in England. I mean, the only guitar strumming singer songwriter going pretty much uh, there. And, you know, that whole thing where, non guitar music had taken over for, for guitar music, we were just oblivious to it in the States. Did you even, I mean, I never heard the term raucist or any of the things that they were throwing around in the British press at all for like a full decade and a half later. Had you come across any of that stuff? No, not at all. Not, not in this way. Although I will say that it was weird. It was weird to see Springsteen. It has always been strange to me. And I have why, why I'm putting this in right now. I thought it, a hundred times his his look for this era but also the fact and i don't maybe he still does this but he he sang he did some songs without a guitar like spring just like yeah. he was oh, a yeah. front man yeah yeah that just is weird to me that i don't think of him that way and 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 that's probably me being even raucous towards springsteen so <laughs> well because he probably had his guitar slung around and put it on his back or something you know yeah he he would do that that big move you know and i got a lot of a lot of angry feedback about the springsteen episode i actually felt kind of guilty about it i've actually been going back and enjoying some springsteen records i frequently do that (laughs) like as as we come to you too our next subject which Mato says you know aside from julian lennon that they were the most traditional rock act that was in the smash hits poll and that they were a a leader of a group of bands dubbed quote-unquote big music including big country from scotland and simple minds i think also from scotland echo and the Bunnymen from liverpool the, the alarm from wales and the water boys who were from dublin also and named the style with their song the big music and i remember buying albums by every one of those bands and some of them 
Big Country, I think, had one and a half songs per album that I like. Simple Minds definitely had an album or two. The, the album that came out before the Breakfast Club single, I really, really tried to like, but it, it didn't stick. Echo and the Bunnymen did stick. The Alarm I bought and really regretted it forever. The Water Boys I bought and liked at the time, but it kind of curdled. Did that big music scene mean anything to you? You know, I was I was briefly intrigued by the alarm. I liked I was I think I've been on a ever since um Aerosmith Draw the Line, which which is referenced many times in and and let it roll in the let it roll archives. Yes. Um, that that uh, that huge disappointment. From then on, I've been on a search that is uh, is almost always, well, always, you know, ends in disappointment because there'll be the next great hard rock hope. And and I saw, I kind of got a little whiff of that from the alarm, and I definitely got it from you too. You too, and and really liked. Um, I bought War, and actually, I bought it the same. I bought it and. Um, and Purple Rain the same day from a Turtles Records store, which you're mentioned wow. in this chapter. Uh, yeah, I bought it in um, in Athens actually. The, um, Athens had a Turtles by then. It had been just an Atlanta chain, and then they were in Athens, and I happened to be there and just got. But I listened to that. You, I listened to War a lot. Yeah, um, I did too. Say, you know, and and I liked I liked those songs. I liked the the way they were going. Um, seemed to be going i like that kind of hard rock um that was musical um and i did not buy the next one and i but i did have you're right though i had big country too i had that album hardly listened to anything but the hit i can't remember any other songs on it yeah i I know some people who like big country's albums all the way through um but that my impression was definitely it was all about the hit. Like it was one of those cassettes that started with the hit and you tended to just rewind it back to the beginning over and over. Mm-hmm. And my story with war is that my buddy Greg bought it and popped the cassette in his car. We drove home from Amarillo. I had an hour and really loved the album, but it was one of those that mm-hmm. I, that he had and I didn't buy it cause I bought other records cause we wanted to trade back and forth and never buy the same records as each other. And so I didn't end up owning war until 87 when Joshua tree came out. I love Joshua tree. Everybody was so excited. And, and with you two, it was like one of those things where with war and unforgettable fire, they weren't popular. Like, no, they hadn't had a big breakthrough hit yet, right? And so we're seen as these freaks listening to weirdo music, and and U2 was, was some of the weirdo music. And so when Joshua Tree is, like, massively successful, I took that as a confirmation that, you know, people do like me, you know, <laughs> whatever, and, and felt like that was my success as well. And then I went to see him in Fort Worth, and it was like the most, to this day, one of the most terrifying concerts I've ever been to because two TCU fraternities, like a, a, a D-grade TCU fraternity was doing the security at this concert. And one of the A-grade TCU fraternities just refused to acknowledge their authority. And the two frats got in an enormous brawl and like an entire row of folding chairs that were linked together was hurled Um Oh, I think over my head, it was way closer than I wanted to be to a frat boy riot. And after that, I never really liked them more, except I finally got a hold of War and owned it and still liked that album. I think that album, that's the definitive U2 album for me. But Me too. Yeah. And Tell it, me this. What, at, what, at what point in the show was that, that the, that the line of chairs went flying? Oh, you'll love was this. That, I mean... It, it was when they were covering Helter Skelter, and oh, and good uh, Lord. that Bono introduced with Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles, and we're oh, gonna God, steal it back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the hubris was so immense that that <laughs> triggered yep. a frat yep. boy riot. Like, yep. and that was you know what U two was always bagged on for was their concept was to take you know basically PIL. The Edge stole his whole style from Keith Levine's uh, work in the the oh, first public image theme. Oh yeah, just ah. listen to the to the public image theme, the first public image hit, and you hear every every trick basically the Edge is ever going to do is in that one song. 
But their concept was, you know, instead of having Johnny Rotten being Johnny Rotten, we'll have something big and expansive and make the stadium music. And that's, you know, very much Mm. was their goal and they achieved their goal. And, um, you know, it's interesting. They really were kind of bucking the trend as being a guitar band rather than a a synthesizer band. And I think it's interesting that all of the quote unquote big music bands were from Celtic parts of England. Even Liverpool is, is Scouse country. I mean, it's just as Irish or Scottish or it's more Irish and Welsh. Um, but it's, Mm. it's not, you know, like London where, where it's just ethnically different. It's got more Celts and, and, you know, obviously Wales and Scotland and Ireland are Celtic. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of interesting to me that, that the periphery of the British Isles had not made the big move over to, to synthesizers. And then he tells the kind of the whole story of how they got involved with Brian Eno. And basically Bono just insisted that he wanted to produce Eno and Eno was not into their music or into them, but, Somehow Bono talked him into it, and uh, and he produced the Unforgettable Fire, and then with Daniel Lenoir, and then goes on to produce the Joshua Tree. But I don't know. I remember at the time it was either October or Unforgettable Fire that the excuse was that Bono had lost his notebook with all his lyrics in it before the album was finished, and and so it was kind of an unfinished album. But I don't know. To me, it really felt like a whiff after War. Interest. I well, I did. I I liked bad. That was the one song I really liked. And yeah. otherwise, it just was. It wasn't getting. It wasn't making me want to go buy it. The other stuff I was hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially Pride in the Name of Love, which is now kind of seen yes, as sir. a definitive sort of U two song, and it was their first MTV sure. hit. But um, I don't know. It was. It was. Uh, uh, you know. It's. Um, I don't know. I don't know, but let's go ahead and hear (laughs) the next band we're going to discuss, The Style Council, My Ever-Changing Moods. And that was My Ever-Changing Moods by Paul Weller's Style Council. And for me, I had just gotten my hands on the Jam sound effects album that my older brother had. And um, I loved that album. And then could never find it in the stores. And then somebody told me Paul Weller was in a new band, Style Council. And I was like, oh, I got to check it out. And that was a definitive draw the line moment where I brought it home and was just, what is this crap? Like it was not, yeah. you know, I wanted more jam, you know, Beatles influenced who influenced rock. And here's the synth sort of light jazz combo. And it completely, completely went over my head. Did, did Sal council make any, or the jam had, were you aware of either of them? Well, and I was aware of the jam just from being into punk and new wave, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dialed into them. And then, didn't Style Council have a video with with him riding a 10-speed bike? This is Isn't the one, that, yeah. It's that song, and okay, that's why. There we yeah. go, baby. I actually like that song. That's what's weird. It's kind of weird. I like. I kind of enjoy I was kind of surprised. I remember being all this stuff happened in a two-room apartment I lived in in Columbus, Georgia, and I remember hearing that song while I was washing dishes and looking around and just kind of dug the song, kind of the same way I liked wake me up before you go which felt like an old r&b it felt like a retro r&b song and that's kind of how i reacted to the to the style council yeah i was you know my exposure to retro r&b at that point was limited to like the big chill soundtrack like that was where i was first (laughs) exposed to motown yeah and uh and 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 dug it but i didn't even connect wake me up before you go go to motown just because of my ignorance of motown at the time but that was just such a catchy song just you know even without a, a backing group you know just the whole wake me up before you go go part was so catchy but got a bit of ground to cover and i want to get 
to uh, the Christmas song, but he talks about Charday, uh, who who comes along and and you know was to me Charday was doing what Paul Weller was trying to do with the Style Council, but did it so well. Everybody liked Charday. Like Charday was just yeah. sui generis. Like she comes out of for me, she came out of nowhere and was just suddenly on MTV with this totally. What I now recognize is, I guess it was it was sort of representative of jazz funk, that sort of, you know, a classic British retro obscure uh, obsession with obscure American R&B and stuff. But Charday, Charday just cut through. I mean, everybody likes Charday. I didn't. I I never heard a bad word mm-hmm. about Charday from from the biggest stupid meathead. Like like I can remember being in a room full of Motley Crue fans and pot smoke, and Charday comes on the MTV and people are like turn it up. <laughs> you know, like, shut up, Charday's uh-huh. on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, but yeah, but I had no cl- clue as to the context of what sh- what scene she was coming out of or anything. I didn't even really realize she was English. Oh, me neither. Me, same here. Same yeah. here. I had no idea about Providence. I just all of a sudden she is there and yeah. really unmistakable. Yeah, she 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 just kind of came out of nowhere and then and then kind of went away like like you know it wasn't like she had there was it wasn't like there was a new Charday album every year or anything like you know it was like mm-hmm. she drops her new booms but got to keep moving on because we've got to talk about the whole Phil Collins sure. phenomenon which Matos does a pretty good job of like a pocket history of Phil Collins and I knew you know the basic stories the drummer in genesis peter gabriel's the singer they're one of the 70s prog rock big time prog rock bands gabriel quits then steve hackett the guitar player quits so there's only three guys in in genesis and they make that move the same as zz top or yes or like the police where they become a new wave band by buying a bunch of synths and they focus on pop you know songwriting rather than like the big song cycles they'd done before but I didn't realize that Collins um, had been producing or, or co-producing Peter Gabriel's solo albums and that I knew in the air tonight, you know, has the famous big drum fill. But I didn't realize that Collins was there in the room when Peter Gabriel and 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 um, Padgham invented the classic gated snare drum sound that defines the 80s and kind of ruined so many other records. But you know, or that he had produced an album by Abbas Frida, um, that he produced Robert Plant. Like I had no idea Phil Collins was this busy. I, I just sort of remember suddenly Su Su Studio was everywhere and I couldn't get, get it to go yeah, away. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say I was medium I was medium there. I was half maybe a third of the way there because I because <laughs> I knew about Frida. Just because I could tell it was Phil I kinda knew about that one. Yeah. And um but yeah, I didn't know that I didn't know I I just always imagined him not getting along with with um Peter Gabriel or somehow I don't know. Yeah, I had no idea. He, you know, he was like he was like the anti Peter Gabriel in a That's lot of ways. He I was thought. not the, yeah. he wasn't avant garde. He wasn't getting out there in freak costumes. He's the opposite of that. Yeah. You know, he was, he was that every, Phil Collins does Phil Collins. Yeah. You know, no matter what. Who's an everyman. So you know, kind of self true, yeah. Self yeah. you know, self deprecating and deprecating, uh, yeah. You know, um, yeah. and I remember Easy Lover, of course, being a massive hit, and and me too. I also remember finding it weird that Phil Collins was and Philip Bailey were were partnered, you know, and and uh, and also I found it I found it personally disturbing that Philip <laughs> Bailey was away from Earth, Wind, and Fire. I like. So yeah. I was more aware of Earth, Wind, and Fire than I, I was of most R&B in the 70s. I don't know why. I just know September was a big me song too. for me. And I liked yeah. their album covers. Like, if I had known Funkadelic, uh, that P-Funk existed in, in the late 70s, I would have liked them better. But I remember spending hours looking at Earth, Wind, and Fire album covers and the big concert photos on the back and stuff and mm-hmm. and, yeah. and being fascinated with the whole Egyptian iconography and everything. So when Phil Bailey shows up in a, in a Phil Collins video, I was like, you've been kidnapped, Philip. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just, you know, like... Uh, it seemed... It did seem... It seemed kind of promising at the time. And then he produced... And then now Rogers produced his next album, 
which had the, and it got written up in the New York Times while they, they were working on it. I just happen to remember this, and and it was supposed to be it was there was supposed to be a progression there, which there was if there was I never heard it. I mean, it just he didn't he didn't end up having a second act after yeah. that one song with Phil. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, it didn't it didn't. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I I don't remember that New York Times article, but that is a telling thing. It's that okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. You didn't. I'll I'll fill you in. Uh, I take your word it's for it. It's a team it. effort for, for sure. <laughs> Although, and speaking of team efforts. Um, but first, we gotta hear we gotta hear uh, the 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 song, I, and I kind of picked songs that that stuck in my throat. <laughs> so here's Phil Collins' Susudio. And that was the studio of Phil Collins. And, you know, I always thought it was studio with a P, like, you know, you're so, you're pseudo. And when mm-hmm. I found out it was just studio, like, that it didn't mean anything, that, that was yet another bummer. Like, and I didn't like the yeah. song. It was inescapable. And I thought that chorus was just, you know, maddening. But then to find out it's not even P.S. studio, you know, it, it's just gibberish. Uh, it was irksome. It was irksome. But I was about to use the segue. Speaking of teamwork, it's time for Do They Know It's Christmas. And, and Matos tells the whole story of how Bob Geldof had been the leader of the Boomtown Rats, that they'd been consistent British hit makers from 77 to 81. They'd only had one minor hit in the United States, I Don't Like Mondays, which got a big backlash because it was based on a school shooting before, you know, back when school shootings were novel. Um, and, you know, they'd pretty much run out of steam by 84. And then Geldof sees a documentary or a BBC special about the famine in Ethiopia and is all in on, we're going to save these poor starving people in Ethiopia. And, you know, my take on this now is, wow, does it seem like a long time ago when a TV show could emotionally move people that much? Like, doesn't it seem pretty corny now to like, get all worked up over like a 60 minutes segment or something. That is a really good point. Well, I'll tell you my version of that is, which I think may be the same side of the same coin reading the way Michelangelo described it moved me more than anything I've ever seen on TV or read or heard on any of those songs or live aid about the famine. It was more. It was more vivid than. I mean, as much as I, you know, saw the stars and and was you know part of the meet, the receiving end of that whole stream of media for all that time until Live Aid. This this was actually the most profound thing I ever have ever. Re- you know, it just I don't know if it was, what he was talking he's about. A good the, writer. Yeah, he is a good yeah, writer. He's, he yeah. tells. I think it's what, to tell what, a story from the the yeah, refugee the camp where. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was they had to fucking. I mean that, and you know, I wonder. Then I start thinking about the potato famine, which, I mean, and when, when is a famine actually not a famine but genocide? And yeah, and I don't, I don't know the answer, but there's there's definitely suspicions about the potato, the Irish potato famine. Yes, and I yes, think there the were British about this too. Pretty you know. convinced, conventionally blamed for the Irish potato famine because the Irish were growing plenty of food for export. It was just that the blight was striking the tiny yeah. little patch that they were left to grow their own food. And yeah, own, I, th- yeah. I think that definitely that the famine in Ethiopia had to do with the politics. And I don't understand the politics of East Africa particularly well. I just know that it's still going on. You know, Eritrea split off from Ethiopia and reduced the rest of the country to a rump state with no coastal access. They they're continuing mm. to have multi-part 
you know, civil wars to this day. Um, and that story you're mentioning where the, I think it was a aid worker who was at, you know, a refugee camp with thousands of people and was told, you know, pick 10 people to feed or something. And, and, huh. and yeah, and they had to take them behind a wall, but it wasn't, it was like a chest high wall. So all the hungry people are standing there on the other side looking at was Yeah, that was pretty, pretty powerful and vivid. Um, but you know, Bob Geldof wasn't going to take it lying down, and he just gets on the phone. Midger from Ultravox is the first person he ropes in. Then he gets Simon LeBon of Duran Duran, Sting, of course, of the police, um, Martin Ware of Heaven 17. And I, I thought it was interesting that uh, he says, Bob also reached out to the Eurythmics, Bananarama, Thompson Twins, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Charday, and Human League, but they all declined, although a couple of them changed their mind. Uh, before the recording, um, but he got Culture Club in there. He got Wham, Paul Young, the Style Council, and uh, and then you know the the sniping between Geldof is just such. I guess it's just just sort of his brand, but the way he talks to the other rock stars is it's like every quote that Matos has in here of Geldof talking to another rock star is like, you know, pull your head out of your ass, you stupid bugger, and. <laughs> <laughs> record the damn song and uh, uh and it's interesting that you know he he parlayed this into a much bigger career than his i mean nobody remembers the boomtown rats but everybody knows sir bob geldof and live aid and and you know so it's interesting uh it's a classic second act i guess he's not american so he can have a second act but well and it somehow and it worked and he's he's he, you know, I still wonder. I mean, I, I still wonder, is he a, a decent guy deep down, but just an incredible bastard? You know, when when he needs to be, or like you just said, it's kind of his brand. I mean, he's not quite as acerbic as Johnny Rotten. No, um, no, but, but, but he got it done. He yeah, got he it did. Done. He did, and he got did. these people. And what what really strikes me in this chapter, and, and it. And this whole this saga that starts here and continues through Live Aid, the whole stardom thing was so loud. That's all. That I feel like that's all I could ever see was star, 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 star. Look what a miracle it is that they're all working together. Meanwhile, the stuff that's that's really profound and vivid. It's you know we're it's abstract. It was just yeah. always It was the famine was always an abstraction. That would be and like, they, yeah, like 15 pictures of Sting and Bono and then like one little picture of the same starving Ethiopian kid with flies on his eyes exactly. next to a can of yeah. porridge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the time you get to Live Aid, that's not even a, a thought, really. Uh, you know, it's just this. Yeah. And for me, it was just a corny song. I don't think there's any defending the song. <laughs> I mean, is anybody you know, still singing that one? And, uh, and then it inspires, you know, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson to get together and, and, and do we are the world, which I think is a much better song than do they know it's Christmas. I mean, and this whole idea, do they know it's Christmas? Like Matos at least points out that yes, they do, that most Ethiopians are Christians. And, <laughs> You know, like, well, and you know what the other irony? I I actually was thinking about this before, way before we read this book or took on this book. I want I started wondering what is the religion in Ethiopia? He, because if they didn't know it was Christmas, because they were because the predominant religion was something else, then it was even worse. Yeah, like, it's a complete non sequitur. You, know? so, you know, it, it is. Do the Buddhists and, know and it's so Christmas? Yeah, it's such a bourgeois question. Yeah, yeah. It, Who it's gives a, a shit? I'm starving. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. You can keep your Charles Dickens, all right? Or any, just send me some porridge. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Something more than than orange oil or whatever it was he they fed. That is just the that's a that's a Holocaust. That's a yeah. story out of the Holocaust. That's that's how bad this sounds like it was. Yeah, it was it was a horrific mass human tragedy. And and the one thing that's yeah. interesting, I you never also never hear I guess Geldof did supervise actually getting relief to those people, which is a big improvement from what yeah. George Harrison managed to do, you know, fifteen years earlier with the concert for Bangladesh, where I think Alan mm -hmm. Klein ended up stealing all the money or something. Um and he's dead, so I don't have to say allegedly, but <laughs> um <laughs> no no apologies to Alan Klein. But um yeah. the the 
you know, so they did make a conscious effort to make sure more of the money would get there, but still it became this sort of self, uh, you know, Ouroboros where the snake eats its tail forever. It just became the celebrity celebrating itself. You know, it went from, yeah. oh, these rock stars are going to do something to make a difference to kind of these rock stars are going to pat each other on the back for, um, you know, being so great and wonderful. So, but the, the, the one that was interesting to me is that um, I had no idea that Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys started out as a rock journalist. Did you know that? I had no idea. That was so yeah. bizarre. <laughs> I know. It kind of made me mad. It, <laughs> me too. It, 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 yeah, one a, more example. Yeah, one more example of somebody who wasn't even trying and got to do it. <laughs> but he was i mean clearly he put in the work and everything yes. but but uh yeah, yeah. but it, it i certainly you know the pet shop boys i think are one of the most i've always respected them i always liked them you know better than most of the synth pop duets and they got critical acclaim and everything and were obviously an important group but i had no idea it was led by a, rock, a former rock critic like because yeah, that's always such either. a knock against a band, you know, like, um, anyway, it's amusing that, the the and that's an aside and we're bringing it up because, because, uh, Neil Tennant was, um, was, uh, writing about the, the Christmas, do they know it's Christmas for smash hits and, and, and Matos elegantly weaves in the story of the Pet Shop Boys in there and, mm-hmm. and then they got, they got named the most promising new act for 1985 in Smash Hits. So any final thoughts about do they know it's Christmas? You know, I, it's funny because I really actually like do they know it's Christmas better than Oh, really? <laughs> because, and it's okay, I mean, that's, hey, I'm I'm not going to throw a Springsteen fit over this. Um, <laughs> hopefully you want to, but the dry, what that song to me that I liked about it was that it, the, that it had all those different voices of that era in it. And then it had, you know, including um, Simon LeBon, Boy George, um, Paul Young, even I, I mean, I can recognize lines. I mean, for whatever reason, it yeah. really summed up that, that era in English in the English part of this. And the drumming was, of course, Phil, you know, yeah. it's so obviously Phil Collins. <laughs> so, so it just, and that song has stayed in my mind. Huh. It's, um, since we've been reading that, you know, since we've got to these chapters, yeah. that's not, but, but I saw it on MTV. That's as far as it went, you know, and I was aware of it, but yeah, but, you know, I didn't run out and buy the 45. You know, I did go back and listen to that song a couple times to prepare for this, but honestly, every time I try to think of the melody, all I can think of is We Are the World. So We Are the World is completely erased. There you go. Do they know it's Christmas for me? <laughs> and next time we'll be talking about We Are the World when Ed yes, Legg sir. and I return. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we are discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, and we're getting to the end. We're already in November. And he's going to go into about mid-85, and we've only got a few chapters left. So, Egg, I look mm-hmm. – Ed, I called you Egg. <laughs> Ed, Le- <laughs> right. Egg, I look forward to the yes, next sir. one. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday – Nate welcomes back Gary Giddens for a talk about some of the great African-American performers just at the dawn of the jazz age. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 